welcome to Walking Dharma Podcast, the podcast where we attempt to demystify classical spiritual teachings and apply them to modern day living. I'm your host, Kristen Coyle. Today's podcast is called The Four Limitless Qualities. And the four limitless qualities are a Buddhist concept. And I first learned about them when I read The Places That Scare You, written by Pema Chodron. It's an incredible book that highlights the virtues, or the four limitless qualities, and also their near and far enemies. So basically the opposite of those limitless qualities. And the reason that learning about these four limitless qualities can be so helpful because by leaning into them and amplifying the energy behind these four limitless qualities, we begin to enhance our lives, we begin to enhance our relationships with others, we begin to experience more harmony in our emotional realm, in our relationships, in our job, everything we do. So the four limitless qualities are actually virtues that we already innately, which means born in, we already innately embody within ourselves. However, when we really study what these limitless qualities or virtues are, we have a clear understanding of how to embody them more and more. So the first limitless quality is loving kindness. Loving kindness is the ability to remain kind no matter what's occurring. And loving kindness is something where we consciously choose it during times of struggle. Because whenever we struggle, there's a tendency to want to push against it, to want to respond with anger or bad intentions, even such as revenge. And the ability to remain in loving kindness is our ability to come from our heart, no matter what is arising. This doesn't mean that you're a pushover and that you let other people walk on you no matter what. It just means no matter what you need to do externally to take care of yourself, in your heart, in your awareness, you anchor yourself in loving kindness. The far enemy or far opposite, as I like to say, of loving kindness is hatred. And hatred is the diametric opposite of kindness. It's where whenever something triggers us, we respond by pushing it as far away from ourselves as possible. And hatred often is masking over feelings of hurt. Whenever someone responds with hatred, it's because they are coming from a wounded place. And that wound probably occurred years or lifetimes ago. So the ability to commit to loving kindness is our conscious turning away from hatred. And it's amazing how much hatred has actually permeated uh, our culture in America, especially. If you look at politics, you start talking about it with people who have different beliefs or support opposite parties. What might have been a great friendship turns into an enemy vibe over-attachment to our own ideals leads us into hatred rather than loving kindness. 
Because if we believe that there is only one right way for things to be, there's only one proper way for the world to be governed, or there's only one right way to eat, or one right way to even do yoga, we isolate ourselves and we close our heart to anyone who believes or does something differently than we do. Our attachment leads us towards hatred if we don't check it. Another near enemy to loving kindness is attachment and aversion. And attachment and aversion are innately connected to one another because whenever we are heavily attached to things being one way, we are also heavily averted to things being any other way. So for example, I really love to do vinyasa yoga. That doesn't mean I'm not going to be friends with people who only do meditation. That doesn't mean I'm not going to work with someone who only does Bikram yoga. And when I say work with someone, I mean maybe they're going to come to my workshop to learn a little bit and enhance what they're already working on. When that person comes into my workshop and tells me that they teach Bikram yoga, I don't roll my eyes and go, oh, you don't belong here. That behavior would be coming from my attachment or my belief that vinyasa yoga is the only way to practice. When someone comes to me and says, I'm a Bikram yoga teacher, but I'm here to learn a little bit to enhance my teaching, ideally my response is loving kindness. So it will be something like, oh, welcome. I'm really happy you're here. That's great that you're branching out to absorb and then bring that back to your own style and your own teaching. So anytime a heavy aversion energy is arising within us, it's coming from attachment. And anytime we allow attachment to govern our relationship connections, or anytime we allow attachment to govern what we're open to and what we're totally closed off to, we shut down our heart a little bit or a lot. And over time, we become very bitter because the world will never meet our little cookie cutter expectations of how things should always be. And the more we cling to how we think things should be, ironically, the more we will notice all the ways that the world is not fitting those expectations. So to embrace loving kindness is also to embrace diversity. It's to be cool with what everyone is doing, no matter what it is. Now that doesn't mean if you see a case of abuse and you're the only one around to help that you don't help. That's not what I'm saying. Loving kindness sometimes can come out as our own internal strength to protect what we know is good and true in this life. But at the same time, that protective instinct that we all naturally have, it gets overactive. So all of the sudden, if someone challenges our belief about something, the tendency, if we don't check ourselves, is to push against them. So rather than receiving their point of view and learning from it with an open heart, even if we think it's total BS, just humoring that person to be like, all right, I'm right, you're right, 
We are all right. Suddenly we transform any attachment we have to things being one way. And we begin to understand that true kindness comes from a place of acceptance and reverence for all of the myriad ways in which the divine source expresses itself through all the different living beings that inhabit this earth. So in a nutshell, loving kindness is about how we give our energy out into the world. It has to do with us. Loving kindness eventually can become a state of being that we are always rooted in. The second limitless quality is compassion. And compassion and loving kindness are often um, used as synonyms, meaning they're almost the same thing. But the difference between them is loving kindness is how you share your love and your kindness with the world. Compassion is about your ability to receive others' suffering as if it were your own. So the Bhagavad Gita says, Him or her, I hold to be the supreme yogi who looks on the pleasure and pain of all beings as he looks on them in himself or herself. Him I hold to be the supreme yogi who looks on the pleasure and pain of all beings as he looks on them in himself. And that's basically what compassion is. It is our ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Embodying compassion means that we're there for others when things get a little bit thick and intense. It's one thing to say to ourselves, oh, I'm so full of compassion. Right now, everyone's so loving towards me. Take, for example, at a festival, right? Maybe you're at an awesome music festival and everyone's cuddle puddling out and giving heart hugs and drinking golden milk lattes full of CBD and who knows what else. It's easy to feel compassion in a space like that because we're surrounded by it. But true compassion is when we are in the middle of a gritty city, in a rough neighborhood, and maybe we're driving by a tent city on the side of the road. This actually happened. Christian and I were in Los Angeles, and we were driving through a grittier part of town, a part of town that was more industrialized, and lining the side of this great big boulevard, which is tent cities for miles. And we were stopped at a light, and I noticed on my left that there were two men fighting. They were first just kind of arguing, and the light was a long one, so we're sitting there for a good couple minutes. And suddenly they start shoving each other. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And then one guy runs away. He goes to his tent, which wasn't far from where they were, and he grabs a baseball bat. And he comes out with the baseball bat in his hand. And right before he swung at the guy, I did look away. But the reason I was watching it in the first place was because I could imagine that if it was me in that situation, how painful it would be 
to be in conflict with another being. For that moment that we were sitting there at that traffic light, I felt connected to those two men arguing. And not because I'm a great saint and I'm always capable of doing this, but in the moment that I witnessed that scene play out in front of my eyes, I felt so much overwhelm to see that level of suffering. Because it's one thing to see it in the movies, and some people grew up with it day after day. I'm not disconnected from that reality. I'm aware of it. I did not. So whenever I see something like that, besides it being shocking, like, wow, I can't believe this is happening in front of me, my typical response, especially before I really started working on myself and doing lots of healing work with others, my initial response would be to shut my heart and block those people out and be like, whoa, bad vibes. And whenever we do that, whenever we close our heart and say, oh, that's bad vibes, I don't want anything to do with it. What we're doing is we're limiting ourselves. We're limiting the amount of love that we are able to radiate outwardly into the world. One with true compassion does not shy away from those who are suffering, but rather one with true compassion holds space in their heart for those who are suffering. Now the opposite of compassion, the far enemy, if you will, is cruelty. And that's, that's quite obvious. If we don't put ourselves in others' shoes. Whenever we are met with someone who's suffering, we might not be able to identify that they are actually suffering and that is why they are behaving in perhaps an undesirable way. So if you're ever out and about, maybe you're going to the grocery store and you encounter someone in the grocery store and maybe they bump into your cart really hard with their cart and they don't apologize and they just huff away quickly. You have two choices. You can respond with compassion and be like, wow, that person must be having a really bad day. I hope they are okay. Or you can respond with cruelty. You can roll your eyes and be like, damn, what did I do to you? And it, that doesn't seem like that much cruelty on the scale of what's happening on the earth these days. But it echoes outwardly and gets bigger and bigger. Our ability to identify someone suffering partially comes from our ability to not take everything in life personally. Someone accidentally ramming your cart with their cart in the grocery store is not personal. That person is in their own reality, and if they're having a bad day, they're probably trying to get through the store as quickly as possible and move on with what they are doing. Sometimes shit just happens. On a more global scale, we can see cruelty can come out in subtle ways, such as those who have billions of dollars hoarding all of their money and not sharing the wealth 
or monopolizing on a certain industry so they are the only one who can reap the abundance from that industry. That is essentially cruelty. Anytime we take more than we actually need, anytime we indulge way more than is actually required, we are engaging in cruelty because we are stealing something from others or we are taking too much. And that is greed. Greed and cruelty are very similar in the way that they are taking away more than they are giving back. So in my opinion, compassion is sometimes about giving back to others in need. And that makes sense, right? Those of us who feel a strong, compassionate pull in our heart are more likely to volunteer at a shelter on Thanksgiving and help serve food. Those of us who feel an overwhelming sense of compassion in our heart are more likely to spend that extra time with our grandparents who are lonely, even if we feel like we have a million things to do, even if we know that it's not glamorous or sexy. It's awesome to take the time for those who have loved us our whole life and reflect that love back to them. At least that's how I feel. Sometimes I'm driving down the road and I'm bumping my music and I'm enjoying the music and I'm relaxing before I go give a massage. But there's this little voice in my head that says, it's actually my mother's voice, call your grandma. And I love my grandmother dearly. She's rad. But sometimes I don't necessarily feel like talking to anyone in that moment because maybe I'm on my way to go talk to a lot of people and I want to preserve my energy. But then my heart opens wider when I think about my grandmother and I am compelled from that compassion to turn the music off and for that half an hour car ride, call my grandmother and talk to her. And it makes such a difference to her because she's alone a lot and she's a strong woman. She's fine alone. But I can tell the difference in her voice from the time I call to the time that we get off the phone. It's not that she desperately needs me to call, but I know that I will help brighten her day a little more if I do. So from that place of compassion, I call her. Imagine if I didn't call my grandmother for a couple of months. She would feel upset. She would feel that void of me not being around. The near enemy to compassion is pity. So whenever I'm calling my grandmother, it's I'm not calling her because I pity her. Anyone who knows my grandmother knows she is strong and vibrant and 83 years young, active and full of friends and hobbies. But even if she wasn't, even if she was ill, I'm not calling her because I pity her. Pity never feels good to receive from others. Think about a time for yourself whenever you've been in a rough situation. If others show pity for you, it's kind of like them saying, you know, I feel sorry for you. Look how messed up your life is and look how great I am. So pity is compassion gone sour. True compassion means we put ourselves on the same level as the person who is suffering. 
Pity means we are putting ourselves above that person on a pedestal, looking down at them and going, "Mm, poor you, I feel for you. And if we keep having pity for those suffering, eventually it does evolve into cruelty because we keep separating ourselves from that suffering. We keep putting our arm out and keeping that suffering at arm's length away from our hearts. And eventually we become okay with putting that suffering 20 miles, metaphorically, away from our heart. This is especially prevalent in people who have a lot of abundance sometimes. They'll see someone who's poor. Maybe they would drive by that tent city in Los Angeles. And whenever they see that fight break out, maybe they just roll up their darkened windows, turn their music on a little higher, roll their eyes and make some ignorant comment and blow by when the light turns green. There's so much of that in the world right now. It's so easy to distance ourselves from others' suffering when we ourselves are not suffering. People will say, oh, don't kill my vibe. The only one who can kill your vibe is yourself through the inability to hold space for others' suffering. Because what will happen is the tables eventually turn and suddenly we are the ones who are suffering. What do we want to receive? Do we want to receive pity? Do we want others to push us away and be like, wow, what's your problem? Get away from me. Or do we want others to come to our level, wherever we may be, and say, hey, I see you. I know you're struggling. I've been there myself. You know what? Let's just be here together in this. Let me support you through this process. My partner does that for me sometimes. Anytime I spiral into a state of overwhelm, for example, or maybe I'm just overworked and so I start to get a little bit crabby, sometimes I will project that crabbiness onto him by saying something like, oh, why haven't you done that? And what that does is it makes it seem like I'm looking down on him. But the reality is I'm actually the one who's suffering, right? So for him, his work with that is he's able to actually identify when I'm in an overwhelmed phase and I'm projecting onto him. And instead of him pushing back against me with cruelty and being like, hey, I don't know what I did, but, you know, this isn't cool. Instead of that, he just stops. He says, hey, come sit by me for a moment. And he says, I understand you're overwhelmed. Let's just do something fun for a minute and let's get through it. What can I do for you to help you? And for me, that's such a big deal because it immediately shifts my energy because I feel like someone is really seeing me when I don't have the personal strength to ask for what I need when I'm in that overwhelmed state. I feel so grateful that there is someone around me who's able to identify, hey, actually, it's not about me at all. It's about something she's going through. And in that, he reaches his hand out and pulls me up out of that space. Now I know what you might be thinking. Well, good for you. Lucky you. 
But the reality is this doesn't have to come from just a partner. This could come from a good friend. This could come from a total stranger who's checking your items out in the grocery store line. You know, we must be willing to receive compassion just as much as we are willing to give it. So there's also a cruelty involved when we try to push the love and the compassion from others away. So this can reverse onto ourselves. If we start pitying ourselves too much, then there will be a tendency to react with a lot of anger or resentment or grief. And our ability to receive compassion from others means we are willing to step away from that suffering as well. Because sometimes we cling to our suffering as an excuse as to why we're not doing things. Sometimes we cling to our suffering as a way to create revenge for another person who's hurt us. Sometimes we cling to our suffering because we don't believe we deserve anything other than that. But the more we cling to it, the further we move from our hearts. The more caught in our head we are. It's like we're replaying a bad loop over and over again. And it becomes static and noise in our mind. And it prevents us from feeling our own heart. And it also prevents us from allowing others to help us. So just as much as we want to cultivate compassion for other living beings, we also want to cultivate compassion for ourselves whenever we find ourselves suffering. And what's really awesome is eventually we can be our own support system for when we are suffering. So take for example, if I ever feel overworked or overwhelmed, I used to be really hard on myself. I would say, what's wrong with you? You should be stronger than that. You don't eat right. You need to drink more green juice. You drank too much coffee today. I can't believe you're eating more chocolate. I'll start getting into that cycle with myself. And now, because I've worked with it enough, I've realized I just have to soften to myself. When I notice I'm in a pattern that might not lead me to greater health or vitality, Instead of shaming myself and being hard on myself, I've just learned to say to myself, it's okay, you know? Only what is needed is what you are doing right now. And I'll note to myself, all right, you did drink too much coffee today for probably what you should have had. And I'll go make myself a smoothie. Or I'll drink some lemon water. I'll just... Do something to counter it. And this is through compassion. If I didn't have compassion for myself, I would just attach to that feeling of guilt and self-punishment and not do anything about it except stew in it until it becomes really thick and dense. My ability to have compassion towards myself is my ability to say, all right, well, those things happened. What can I do right now to help alleviate my suffering? Okay, Go make a green juice. So in a nutshell, compassion is the ability to put ourselves in others' shoes. There is a great Buddhist meditation technique called Tong Lin, which means sending and receiving. And it helps cultivate compassion 
and loving kindness. And this meditation technique in brief is where you inhale all of the pain and suffering of some individual or some scenario that is unfolding. And then you exhale all the loving kindness, compassion, and overall what you think would be a remedy for that scenario. And then you repeat. You inhale and you visualize yourself taking in all of the suffering. And you exhale and breathe out the remedy of kindness, the remedy of acceptance and understanding and reverence for that being or those beings who are suffering. And this meditation technique can be a little bit intense to contemplate doing, but all of that suffering that you breathe in, it doesn't stick to you. What you're doing is you're growing your heart bigger. You are becoming more courageous to realize that no matter what suffering you endure, you have the power and the ability to offer love back to the world, no matter what. The third limitless quality is joyfulness. And joyfulness is a state of being that emanates from inside of ourselves and spreads outwardly to the world and to those that we interact with in every moment, even the plants and the trees and the food we chop as we cook. We can interact with all objects and all living beings with a sense of joyfulness in our heart. And to me, joyfulness is to take on an attitude of celebration of all that is. Life is truly a celebration. That doesn't mean every moment there's a big-ass party going on. (laughs) That doesn't mean every day is going to be full of ecstatic bliss and awesome encounters. That's called happiness. Happiness is something that oftentimes we base or is based on external circumstances going the way we want them to go. Joyfulness, however, is a state of being that no matter what is happening outside of ourselves, we can remain in joy just by identifying that love is the backing to all of life and that is reason enough to be joyful to see that the universe is always conspiring in your favor everything that happens for you not to you but for you is for your own awakening there is this zen slogan that I first read when I was 17 years old And I didn't understand it at all when I read it. It was written on a Christmas ornament at the pottery that I worked at and made clay pieces at. And it says, Barn burnt down. Now I can see the moon. I was like, what? Barn burnt down. Now I can see the moon. And I always remembered that slogan 
and I never really tried to understand it. I just kind of liked it. I thought it was silly. I'm from St. Louis where there's like lots of farmer type people around and I was like, huh, barn burnt down. Now I can see the moon. And I pictured some like crazy farmer out in a field jumping around, you know, in the corn laughing about his barn burning down. So years later, this slogan kept coming up for me. And finally, one day it really clicked. It's like, oh, the barn burning down is a metaphor. It's like something in life fell away. Something that I thought I really needed dropped away from me. And I can see the moon is saying, hey, that might be perceived as lost or loss, but I actually didn't lose anything. I actually gained the ability to see the wide open sky. And when I say the wide open sky, I'm talking metaphorically. I mean, having gratitude to realize every disappointment, every perceived letdown is actually a blessing in disguise. So whenever we experience loss, there's a tendency to get caught in that downward spiral of being a failure. If we can ground ourselves in joyfulness, even having experienced that loss, we are still able to have the perspective of the bigger picture of gratitude. Because when something falls away, you know already something new is being born at the same time. Or in some cases, when something falls away, it is making necessary space. And sometimes all we need is more space to step away from our mind and feel clarity. So barn burnt down, now I can see the moon, basically means whenever you lose something, you're gaining something bigger. You are gaining spiritual awakening, perhaps. The ability to be in joyfulness is the ability to see life as it really is. The far enemy of joyfulness is envy. Take that slogan, barn burnt down, now I can see the moon. What if it was, barn burnt down, now I'm so fucking jealous of my neighbor who has this beautiful new barn they built, and why is it always me that all these bad things happen to, and they're just so blessed next door, and I have all the shit hitting the fan over here. That proverb wouldn't teach us anything except envy, right? The ability to say, barn burnt down, now I can see the moon, is the ability to remain anchored in joyfulness. Not just joyfulness towards ourselves, but joyfulness towards those neighbors who have the epic new barn that has everything you ever wanted, but instead your rickety old ass barn burnt down. What do you have? You have the moon. Metaphorically. Anytime we allow envy to take over our heart, we actually push what we are wanting further away from ourselves. Envy is essentially wishing that we were in someone else's shoes or wishing we had something someone else has. 
And whenever we envy someone, most oftentimes the case, we're not super loving towards that person, right? We tend to push that person away or try to think of bad things to say about them to justify why you feel so much negativity or envy towards that person. Even in the yoga world, if someone perhaps gets a clothing sponsorship, suddenly all those people who didn't get that clothing sponsorship, they're calling that person a sellout. They're saying, oh, you're everything wrong in the yoga world. Meanwhile, that person is out there living their dreams, extending their reach to help hundreds or thousands of people instead of just a handful of people. And they're in total joy because they followed the flow towards their own personal success. So really, whenever we're envying someone, it's often because we wish that we were in that position. And this is an important thing to identify. Be friendly toward the happy. If someone has something you want, don't don't wish that you had it in the way that you wish, you know, they didn't. Instead, be happy for them. Support that person in their success, whether you agree with how they got it or not. That's inconsequential. Because if you are so caught on everything you disagree with about what that person is doing, you are certainly not focusing on your own trip. By our ability to support others in their success and carry the joy in our heart, whatever it may be arising, we become rooted in joyfulness. The near enemy to joyfulness is overexcitement. Overexcitement is where we attach to some external scenario as the source of our joy. And then whenever that external scenario has changed, the joy tends to fall away with it. Overexcitement is where we let our joy reach frenetic heights. And in that it affects the nervous system in a negative way. And it eventually does breed envy if we don't put it in check. What I mean by this is maybe one day you get a great opportunity. Maybe you get sponsored by a cool yoga clothing company. And you get really excited about it. And you're like, yes, finally, it's my turn. And then maybe a few hours later, you find out your best friend got sponsored too. Do you feel jealous that, wait a minute, I thought I was special. What is going on here? You haven't done fill in the blank, you know, all these years of practice. I've been teaching much longer. I mean, we could just keep filling it in, right? So the key to true joyfulness is to stay grounded in it. Be friendly towards the happy. And whenever envy arises... Just drop it. Transmute it. Look for the beauty instead of all the things wrong and why that person doesn't deserve it. Because the moment we feel like someone else doesn't deserve success, it's actually mirroring our own feelings of not deserving success. The minute you drop that 
and lean into support of others, you welcome success closer to you. There's a joy in knowing that we have the ability to be supportive and loving whether we are getting what we want or not. The fourth limitless quality is equanimity. Equanimity is the ability to remain centered and grounded no matter what is arising around us. Equanimity is required for us to cultivate the other three qualities of joyfulness, compassion, and loving kindness. If we are not in an equanimous place, we are in a reactive place. And anytime we are in a reactive place, we are more likely to take things personally. We are more likely to sabotage ourselves because we are not feeling even keeled. So we want to project that feeling of discomfort and all the emotions that come with it onto others. And that is not an equanimous place. That is rather way off center. So to be in equanimity is to be centered within ourselves. Eventually, it is to continually witness the movie of life without attaching to it. But initially, equanimity is seeing beyond attachment and aversion and simply sitting with what is. To ground ourselves in equanimity is to be in an unbiased state. This is a section of chapter 12 from The Places That Scare You. It says, Whenever someone asked a certain Zen master how he was, he would always answer, I'm okay. Finally, one of his students said, Roshi, how can you always be okay? Don't you ever have a bad day? The Zen master answered, Sure I do. On bad days, I'm okay. On good days, I'm also okay. This is equanimity. Think about the slogan, Barn burnt down, now I can see the moon. If one is not in an equanimous place, whenever the metaphoric barn burns down, we're not open to seeing the moon because we're attaching to the fact that the barn burnt down and all the projection that comes along with that perception of losing something. But nothing is ever lost in this life. Everything is always given. That's another podcast in itself right? Our ability to remain in equanimity is whenever we experience loss. Yes, of course, allow yourself to go through the whole myriad of emotions that want to play out, but also be willing to see the bigger picture beyond it. Be willing to look up and see the wide open sky, if you will, of opportunity that is being presented to you.
The far enemy of equanimity is prejudice. Prejudice is basically being extremely attached to things being a certain way, thinking only one way is the right way to be, and anything else is wrong and should be scorned. That is basically prejudice. Okay? Here's another entry from the places that scare you. The Buddhist teachings identify eight variations on this tendency of prejudice and this tendency to hope and fear. To be prejudiced is to only have our heart open for certain aspects of existence and then everything else we are closed off to. So this is where we are overly attached to pleasure and run from pain. Where we drink in all the praise we can get and then blame things, blame others when things don't go our way. Prejudice is to be greedy to gain everything we can and to scorn loss or let loss wreck us if we experience it. Prejudice is to chase fame and deny disgrace or run away from it if it comes our way for some reason, karmically probably. And in the places that scare you, Pema Chodron says, as long as we are caught in one of these extremes, the potential for the other is always there. They just chase each other around. No lasting happiness comes from being caught in this cycle of attraction and aversion. So to be equanimous is to accept the duality, to accept pleasure and be okay with it, to accept pain as needed and be okay with it. Actually, one of the central tenets of all yogic and purification practices is tapas. And tapas means to burn. But a broader, longer definition of tapas, if you will, is tapas is to accept pain as help for purification. So one can only appreciate pain and discomfort when they are in a rooted, grounded place of equanimity to see that the pain and the discomfort and the loss is actually purifying our mind and our heart. So we can be more compassionate, so we can be more joyful, so we can continually radiate loving kindness. The near enemy to equanimity is detachment. And this is tricky because we oftentimes think that detachment is equanimity. But detachment is basically distancing yourself from all of life. Whereas equanimity is to be right in the middle of all of life, to be fully in the experiences, to let everything in you rise and fall, and to be clear with yourself. But no matter what's happening, equanimity is to be rooted in that little place of the internal witness. And it's actually not a little place, it's very vast. If we root ourselves in the idea of witnessing life, if we root ourselves in the concept of I am not the doer, 
we become equanimous. And whenever we experience some form of suffering, we don't run from it anymore. When someone's trying to be detached, it's often because they are running away from life. Detachment kind of hints at being cold from being locked up inside for fear of what might come up if we warmed up or softened up a little bit. Indifference is a synonym for detachment. It's when you see that street brawl break out in that gritty neighborhood in Los Angeles and you say, eh, fuck them. That's not what the world needs right now. <laughs> it never was, but unfortunately it's happening a lot. And I'm sure all of us can identify a time when we've done that. Equanimity is to see that fight break out as you're sitting at that long-winded traffic light and not be scared and not run and not try to make it better either necessarily because that could be dangerous. Equanimity is to just see things as they are and not try to change it, but rather ride it out from that deeply rooted sense of awareness of the present moment. Self-awareness as well is required to be equanimous. Because if you are not aware of your internal landscape, your internal abode of your own mind, emotions, sensation in your body, you can't be equanimous because you're always looking outwardly. To be equanimous is to be willing to look inwardly and check in on ourselves essentially and notice what is there to be noticed detachment and indifference is where we are not willing to feel anything it's where we think we have to just go up into a cave and meditate for the rest of our lives but osho has said this and i'll paraphrase it no real yoga is happening meditating in a cave you could meditate in a cave for 50 years, but because there are no external distractions, you're not working through your stuff, you're just hiding from it. Someone who's meditated in a cave for 50 years might emerge in the village one day, immediately have someone step on their foot, and have the same reaction they had 50 years ago before they went into the cave. That's not always the case. But what Osho is saying there is indifference and hiding from things that created stress in us, it doesn't lead us to self-awareness. It leads us to self-denial. And as long as we are in denial, we can't awaken to the miracle and beauty that is happening in every moment of this existence and the next. To be equanimous is to be okay with whatever waves rise and fall. So these four limitless qualities are virtues that we already contain within ourselves, as I've mentioned. And the reason they're called limitless qualities is because if you can tap into these natural, innate virtues, everything around you starts to open up like the wide open sky after the proverbial barn has burnt down. These limitless qualities help us see the moon. 
Thank you so much for listening to Walking Dharma. Aloha.